previously on giving the mic to the wrong person. My name is Ben Burgess. I teach philosophy at uh, Rutgers, New Jersey, uh, which means that, among other things, I teach uh, symbolic logic classes at various levels and also what we call uh, logic, reasoning, and persuasion, or other places might call like a critical thinking class, which is uh, what's most closely related to a lot of what I think we're going to talk about here. Uh, since I wrote a book, uh, which is available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and some other places, it's going to come out at the end of May, called uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Ben, well, how did you come to becoming to your own particular uh, active tendency, shall we say? Would you mind giving a, uh, giving a, a little personal history? Because that's always kind of interesting to hear how folks uh, wound up here, as it were. Uh, wound up here, like politically? Sure. Uh, okay, sure. I was just trying to figure out what you were asking. Uh, yeah. Uh, God, that's a good question. So- Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to cut and sample that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a little tricky. Uh, try to try to kind of think back and reconstruct, you know, uh, the the sort of all of that. Um, I, I mean, I could. I think there are like a few different ways of presenting this that would all kind of be accurate as far as they go. Uh, like I'm a semi red diaper baby in the sense that. Um, that my parents uh, had been involved in radical politics, you know, like a long time before I was born. Um, although uh, they, that was certainly not something that was around in any, you know, uh, particularly, um, you know, it's 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 not like they were, you know, like by the by the time. You know, I came along. It's it's certainly not like they're talking about socialism at the dinner table or anything. You know, uh, not in, yeah, I have not in Michigan uh, in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I will say, my my very earliest political memory uh, is from the nineteen eighty four election. I would have been four years old, and I I'm sure I didn't quite understand when the election was, but I knew I knew that there had been a thing the night before that somebody won and somebody lost. Right? I'm sure I had at least that level of understanding to the fact that there had just been a presidential election. And so I remember like waddling downstairs as a four year old. Uh, and, uh, my dad was at the dinner table, like the, um, you know, having breakfast, he had the newspaper out and I, and I said, who won? And he just curled his lip at this voice of just utter despair and disgust. He said, Reagan. Um, so that's the uh, so that's that's the earliest time I can ever remember having a conversation about politics is my dad being disgusted that Reagan had just won re-election, um, but I uh, I got uh, I was in like I was politically active like in my early twenties in the anti-war movement uh, in two thousand two two thousand three uh, and various things kind of coming out of that and then for a long time. You know, I wasn't, um, I, I kind of, I would, um, you know, like probably for, you know, most of my, my twenties and, you know, and, and certainly early thirties, uh, my political activity was like pretty much restricted to the fact that like, 
I'd read the Glenn Greenwald articles and like argue with people while I was out at the bar about how the drone war was fucked up and you know they they shouldn't make excuses for it. Um, Real quick, but, Jacob, you had a question. Yeah, I was just wondering: were there any particular debates that you had during this that were particularly influential on you? Oh yeah, um, or any that yeah. you, or maybe even any that you watched, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's a good question. Um, so, well, again, to to kind of make make that separation, uh, I mean, all of the sort of big public spectacle debates I remember watching this time were like you know, presidential debates, uh, you know, between, you know, neoliberal centrists, you know, like, like John Kerry or Barack Obama and, uh, uh, and Republicans. So, you know, sort of didn't have a dog in those fights. Uh, but certainly thinking in terms, thinking certainly in terms of, of reasoning in that broader sense, I will say, I just mentioned Glenn Greenwald and I think one of the re and I think that he was, he, you know, in his own way, you know, I mean, obviously his background is as a lawyer, uh, but, you know, he, he does lay out really, like, tight, really carefully constructed arguments. That Absolutely I always... savage. He's a he's a pugilist, I would say. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he is savage, but it's interesting that the way that he's savage is this, like, very, like, reason lawyerly way uh, that, like, he's, he's going to, like, really get you on like the, the the inconsistency at the heart of your position uh and yeah so I, th- I think i think greenwald is very good at that and then um i'd always been uh well actually so i'll also say this that um and this is a political change that i certainly wouldn't claim is entirely due to, to arguments i mean i think that it also just kind of reflects a general change in the you know whatever the zeitgeist you know but um but I had, um, you know, going back to that those that early anti-war activity and all that, and even before that, um, I'd always been a um, I'd always been a third-party guy. You know, I always thought like, um, you know, like that. Uh, I think that Kang and Kodos episode of The Simpsons it really got to me <laughs> at an impressionable age. America, take a good look at your beloved candidates. They're nothing but hideous space reptiles. It's true. We are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. Right, this is a two-party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a third-party candidate. Go ahead. Throw your vote away. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the first vote I ever cast uh, when I was 20 was for Ralph Nader. Uh, and, um, and I always like, I always had that, um, that kind of, um, Hey, the way, if we can kind of recognize that there's something fucked up about the, you know, bipartisan consensus in American politics and that, you know, Democrats are war criminals too, and all this stuff that, that like what that means strategically is that you have to try to, uh, to build a third party. And so, you know, that was, I guess, the other, you know, probably the most politically active thing I did, you know, besides arguing with people at bars was, uh, you know, was do, you know, cast, you know, my little vote for the Green Party, you know, every two years. And that's certainly an issue that I've come around hard on uh, that I, I do definitely think that the, the sort of 
that um, not necessarily that the Democratic Party can be taken over. That's a more complicated question, but that, but that it's strategically useful at this point in time for the radical left to back the um, the social democratic faction in democratic politics. That it's it's that trying to get Bernie, you know, the Democratic nomination, elected president, uh, for example, or doing state and local equivalents, the same thing. That's like a strategically useful thing for the left to be doing. Uh, and I think that part, and I do think that, you know, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that it's like entirely arguments that like got me on that. Right. Cause that would just clearly not be true. I mean, part of it's that like American politics changed, right. You know, that we have this whole like wing of uh of of the democratic party now where people will like call themselves socialists and you know all this bizarre unprecedented stuff like that um but and so it, like there mean, was... hear me out though professor what if you did say that how much cooler would your book seem if you did make the <laughs> argument that it was all arguments it's not true <laughs> but it sounds really convincing Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna come uh, to the dark I'll, side. Yeah, that, I'll that. ask them to. I'll I'll tear out all the pages and all the <laughs> copies that've been printed so far, and uh, and you know replace it uh, replace it with something where I I tell that transparent lie. But yeah, that's uh, See, that's 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 some Vulcan shit. Yeah. Yeah, but no. I mean, so okay. So obviously there was this exciting possibility. So it's not just arguments that kind of emerged politically, but arguments definitely <clears throat> played a role. Like I was I was reading you know this whole time. I was reading like Bashkar Sankara in Jacobin and like when he first started to kind of make this argument that, Oh, we should, you know, um, you know, we should support Bernie Sanders running as a Democrat. I was kind of nonplussed by it, but you know, as, as I kind of saw that argument play out more, the Sankara side of it really did start making, making sense to me. So I, I do think that, I do think that the arguments did play some role in getting me to change my mind about this this fairly major issue about left strategy. Can I just make a and I'm I'm being sincere here is that everything yeah. that you've said um speaks to kind of like your experiences speak more to like your intellectual sensibilities whereas somebody juxtaposed to and I, I'm perhaps I'm making an assumption, right? Sure. Um because I don't know your whole life, but like juxtaposed yeah. somebody like me who, you know, I was an undocumented immigrant until I was 21, uh, you know, my, my raised by a single mother as a housekeeper, blah, blah, blah. And um, I think a lot of my development, my, my, my intellectual and philosophical development had to do more with my lived experiences. And so yep. I, I completely understand the value of trying to use um, uh, debate or, yeah. um, you know, logic uh with 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 folks you you disagree with but i think it's so much i think it's a lot more difficult when you have a personal stake um in the topic and and i have found like the one of the core tools of of um like the dreamer movement is uh, something called story of self um those of us who are organizers understand it's you basically take a personal story and you relate it to um you you relate it to 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 the issue at hand, yeah. and so I've found that to be far more useful um, in terms of changing people's minds. Uh, I should say changing people's hearts than um, kind of explaining, which takes so much longer, by the way. The fucking the you know the 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 massive um, 
the long shadow that that the U.S. industrial complex has has, has cast over Latin America and the global South at large, international mm-hmm. trade, trade agreements, and all this other shit. Um, and so I, you know, and I take and I, I I would say that that's <clears throat> that works just as well with union organizing because you can give people a list of 10 reasons why they should be why they should be union members mm-hmm. and they're all valid right um but it's not really that giving people kind of a dry list of reasons that's not usually what gets them to um sign the card it's it's you know having somebody that they work with that they have a personal connection with um and that they respect asking them and a lot of it is just based on emotional connection as opposed to um you know logic right uh, on that note this actually was one of the questions uh that i wanted to ask uh and i'm kind of glad that we have at least two uh philosophy majors here uh yeah. in terms of as a persuasive okay just for i mean this point is my own edification and i think we, we kind of talked to derek Bryan about this too a little bit but can you yeah. can you break in terms of persuasive style can you break down the classics like tease of heart you know logos pathos ethos Legos, uh, uh, egos, uggos, uh, as, uh, as, 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 you know, either as like persuasive strategies or even like attempts, you know, lines of discourse. And this yeah. is for, this is for both of you because you've taken far more classes in this, read about a bunch more stuff on this than I have. Please don't compare me to Ben. No. <laughs> the dude has a PhD, he teaches all the time. Oh, okay. Uh, I get high a lot uh, in under. I'm sorry, guys. Well, yeah, okay. So, so I, I think that to to maybe start with the first question, uh, I basically agree. Uh, I, I I put a caveat in, but I do basically agree with what you're saying that uh, that they that there is uh, I think or what I think you're saying, which is that there is a lot of value to these other strategies uh, that uh, are based more on um, tapping into personal experiences. Uh, sharing stories that you're going to have a certain sort of emotional resonance yeah, emotional connection uh person you know person to person connections etc and that there's value to that and in fact that that's probably going to that's probably going to convince more people than yes. like you know making you know more uh than a more more dry argumentative strategy i think that's totally right i have no quarrel with any of that um i think i think that what i would say though uh the caveat is that you know, there's a there's a whole range, right? You know, so I I totally think that you're right that you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Bhaskar Sankara is going to have more of an impact on a big nerd like me, you know, than like on you know a uh, normal, you know, somebody who's cool, you know. But uh, in uh, but the that you know that like but that as a matter of of training, as a matter of um, of background as a matter of personality there's like a whole range of like who like the really tightly written argumentative essay is going to have the most effect on versus who it's going to have a little bit less effect on versus to who just doesn't have time for that shit um and who the uh and who the sort of artfully presented personal story is going to have a big effect on versus who it's going to have a little bit less of an effect on versus who you know just just might not be be moved by it right i think that both of those things are along broad spectrums and different people come in different degrees and i think we really need a multiplicity of tactics here that um that i think we that you know again you know like i keep saying i don't think it's all or nothing i don't i don't think that like it's a question of like 
should the um, you know people pushing you know pushing you know the Dream Act uh, totally give up on the strategies that you're that you're applying and just focus on like writing you know uh, Noam Chomsky-ish screeds about the history of the U.S. and Latin America and, and how it you know impacts uh, immigration trends. Clearly not, right? That would be disastrous. I think, in fact, and even if the question is, what are we going to spend more resources on? I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think that, I think that we probably, you know, that like, um, that probably a lot of those other tactics might even be effective with more people. But I do think that there are, there are people for whom uh, the kinds of tactics that I'm talking about uh, are going to be effective, and I don't think we should write those people off either. I think we need I think we need people who are doing both. And actually, it's I was thinking earlier because because you had a, used a union organizing example before that, and uh, w- what it made me think of uh, was something that happened in with my union when uh, last uh, last year uh, I was doing some. Um, uh, I was doing some tabling uh, for my AAUP AFT local, uh, and uh, that was in that case. Granted, it was uh, more directed at the you know, at like trying to build alliances with students, you know, than that it was, um, you know, with that it was direct union recruitment. Uh, but that in um, and of course everything you're saying, you know, I mean is is just common sense that you know that that like as an organizer. The, the people that you want to spend most of your time focusing on aren't the ones that you know that you're gonna like spend a lot of time arguing with it's the people who are already the most likely to, to come over right your right. side that, that that makes sense to me yeah. uh, but on the other hand I do remember doing that and um, and having like uh, one person who's like come up to the table picked up a leaflet or whatever uh, you know, Saying, oh, but you know, can like Rutgers really afford all of this? Whatever, you know, uh, and and I didn't do this because I don't know all this stuff off the top of my head. But uh, one of the other uh, organizers, Jenna, uh, you know, well, an actual organizer, right? Not just I was just there as a member, mobilized person, but you know, is uh, had, you know, she just started talking about, oh no, no, we actually have, you know, here are the numbers, here's what they've got in reserve. We have these like economists who are advising us about how to, you know how to do this and it was it wasn't more than like a 90 second spiel but it was really fucking impressive and uh and i think that like maybe even for like other people who are like standing around and listening or whatever i think who might not have even asked that question because like they, they're, they're just not confrontational people or whatever but that might be in the back of their heads you know uh that like I think, I think it really. Sh- oh no, these people know what they're talking about. They're not just like asking for crazy unicorn stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there, there's some value to the fact that that she had that 90 second answer uh, for the, you know, for the person, the person who does, who does ask, you know, that ask that question. That you know that even if uh, that even if that shouldn't be the sort of primary focus, it's good to have like a really tight answer when that does come up. And I, I see some analogy there, I think, uh, with, you know, with like trying to get the arguments right or being able to explain, you know, to people who might be influenced, you know, by some right wing ideas, uh, you know, what's, what's wrong with them. Uh, not because I think that like arguing with those people should necessarily be our primary focus and certainly not. Cause again, I don't think we're going to win over the most hardcore fans. I think those people are probably not winnable, 
But I think that there are a surprising number of people, uh, like even when it comes to um, to the lived experience question, I think you know that there are. I mean, certainly, you know, whatever, this is just anecdotal, but like certainly I've had conversations. This goes back to what we were talking about before about how most normal people have incoherent mishmashes of beliefs uh, that I've certainly talked to people who had, who, you know, who didn't get to be, you know, fancy, you know, philosophy instructors. Uh, Not that, you know, like not that my particular contract is great or whatever, but, you know, they have, you know, like 70% of people who teach at American universities, you know, I'm not in that tenure, you know, stream, but Mm -hmm. uh, in any case uh, I do, you know, but like people who don't have, you know, schmancy comfortable jobs like I do, you know, people who have really shitty jobs who could really benefit from joining a union uh, who have, who have absorbed, who have like vaguely absorbed some like right to work talking points that they've gotten from various, you know, right wing, news sources but who aren't even generally right-wing people right like there are people who who like who will like leave like all end up getting into talking to because like they leave a comment on a video that i do so like they're they're eclectic enough that they're like you know they're they're going out of their way to watch a socialist video on youtube and they're people who are just like have like a fairly like regular shitty job uh, which will come up in the con- course of the conversation, but who have like, oh yeah, but like, you know, they've kind of absorbed this idea that like it's bad that people are forced to, you know, join a union that's going to give their money, you know, to a political party they might not agree with and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, or like, I've, or I'm thinking here of people who, um, you know, like I remember, um, you know, ta- long, long time ago, you know, having a random, you know, I think I was like getting, you know, uh, actually, yeah, this was back, you know, during the years of, uh, of voting for the Green Party when like I remember getting into a conversation with about it with a Hispanic waitress at a Denny's who uh, had a, who was like, oh, yeah, no, I totally vote for, you know, Nader, whoever. I totally agree with these green people about everything except for I can't because, you know, they, they support killing babies. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so like that, like she had that like one anti-choice view that was totally impacted her uh her whole perspective on um you know on like who to vote for and all this like really important stuff even though otherwise you know she was like very left-wing otherwise and i think those i think those people those people exist and you know and and there and there are more of them than we might think and that doesn't mean that they should be our our exclusive focus or primary focus even and i realize that as you said it's often like it's often a much harder thing to do to like make whole arguments than to, than to kind of get people on what they can kind of immediately connect to emotionally. And I'm not against trying to get people on what they can immediately connect to emotionally, but I do think it's also useful as part of a total arsenal of tools at our disposal to have some people who are in the lane of trying to get the arguments right. Uh, which I guess goes to Jeremy's question uh, about the, you know, logos and pathos and all that stuff uh, that, you know, I mean, with, without, um, I, you know, I, I've already been talking for a while. So without talking, you know, Ed's talking for too much longer on this question. I, I, I think that, you know, like the earliest versions of universities in ancient Greece or, you know, when people would just have, you know, like philosophers to tutor them or whatever, right? Like 
one of those subjects that they would learn was logic and one of them was rhetoric. But and, if, and, and, and they're both treated as, as, as useful subjects, which I think is the right attitude that I think these are, these are both, you know, I'm in the logic lane cause that's what I happen to know about and be able to contribute. But I think it's also definitely worth, you know, uh, getting the rhetorical packaging, right? A hundred percent. But, but if you, if you would, I'm hard pressed to think of, uh, a better example of where all the the folks who are who are um, um, friendliest to data driven arguments it would be in academia, right? If we're on the topic of higher ed unions, and so if that were the case, then then union organizing should be very easy, you know, and that it would stand to reason that higher ed unions would be some of the strongest unions out there. And it's you know, I it's not this is absolutely not personal to to AUPAFT uh, uh, Rutgers, but you know, if that were the case, then we wouldn't have this kind of uh, terrible chipping away of, of tenure track positions and all, all of the problems uh, that 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 affect higher ed. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that um, there are, um, you know, I think for for a whole variety of reasons, uh, it, it is very difficult. Uh, I mean, as um, yeah. OK, so sorry, I was just, you know. So yeah, I think that, uh, but I think that the sort of the sort of core piece of the argument is well, one, I differentiate between you know data driven and the sort of larger subject of arguments because I think that the, I don't think that any honest moral or political argument is just going to be about data, right? You know, there, there's there's mm-hmm. going to have to be some underlying normative claims going on there too, and I think that one reason um, why. Uh, it's been very difficult uh, to organize uh, higher ed unions. I mean, I'm actually lucky enough in in my case, I'm lucky enough to be in, in kind of an island of exception here uh, that there is actually a, a very, um, you know, very high density. Well, among full-timers, there's a very high density of union membership. Part-timers are more challenging, you know, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but part-timers make more here. You know, they, they make criminally little, but they make a lot more here than they make at most institutions because they've been organized since like the 1980s, uh, which is just, biz- you know, bizarrely unusual. Uh, but in, uh, but I think that one of the reasons why it's difficult uh, to, um, to organize uh, higher ed unions, you know, when it is difficult uh, is that, there's a lot of uh, false consciousness about uh, their class position uh, of, of people in those cases. You know, it's, it's like um, people, uh, a lot wait, of, wait, wait. that's prob- a different, that's a different, that's, that's a different argument than what I'm talking about because I've heard, cause I have a, I have a higher ed um, local. And so everybody says the same thing. Oh, their professors are too stuck up to do anything. And, and organizing is a formula, right? I mean, if, if Marriott workers that are, you know, predominantly black and brown women, many of whom are immigrants, if they can organize and defeat like the biggest hotel chain um, yeah. in the nation and possibly the world, um, then, you know, the professors can sure as hell get up and, and hold a sign. But that's that's different. That's because I, I always have to push this push back against this with membership when they say that stuff. I'm like, no, you guys aren't special. But that's different from what I was talking about. I was just trying to make my point. Um, I'm sorry, Jeremy. Oh, no, 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 please go. Okay. I was just trying to reinforce my own point Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what I was saying in that, you know, if if it were the case that arguments was uh, logical arguments were the type of thing that appealed to most people, then it would also be the case, I think, 
that high, you know, that higher ed unions would be, you know, the strongest force in, in you know, the strongest union force, labor force in, in the United States, because they are the type of people who respond to that. And what I'm saying is that's not the case. So, yeah, I guess I'd say a few things about that. Uh, so one is that the, the point about professors not seeing themselves as workers and, and kind of cherishing the self-identification that's a very hard fit with collective action, uh, I do see as relevant to what you're saying because uh, because I think that it's an alternate explanation for the same data um, that it's it's not that they have uh, that they're um, you know it's not that uh, that like okay even these people are just indifferent you know to arguments it's that there's this other stumbling block there uh, and I also um, I also think that part of the assumption underlying this idea that like if arguments you know, worked on anybody, and I'm certainly not, by the way, claiming that most people are responding. You know, I think, I think there is a, I think there is a range to which different people uh, respond to, or you know, or are um, influenced, you know, by arguments. Uh, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not 100% for anybody, but I, I think for everybody, it's for for just about everybody, it's more than zero, and it, it and it varies wildly. But like I think that uh, that the uh, the two problems with the claim that if people uh, were really influenced by arguments, then surely these people of all people would be influenced by arguments. But the weakness of higher ed unions, you know, counts against that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that a couple of problems with that are one uh, that there are these other these other factors that are specific uh, to higher ed that that counteract that, uh, and you know, and two. I think that uh, that assumes that the you know that assumes that there are people who are making arguments to them left, right, and center. And I have to say, as somebody who's pretty involved in a higher ed union, uh, that you know both as a volunteer member mobilizer and as you know for a couple of years I've been on the executive board of of my union local, uh, and I've been pretty you know you know decently good friends with you know some people who are. Who are organizers? Uh, you know, who are like professional staff organizers for that union. So, as somebody who's who's been pretty involved in that world, I don't really see a lot of people like doing things like you know, like making arguments against you know, like you know, making arguments against anti-union talking points and stuff like that. There's some of that, uh, but I don't I don't see a whole lot of that. Uh, and that might be because they have good reasons not to do that. That might be because people have correctly concluded that, you know, their time is better, you know, you know, their limited time and energy is better spent on things other than, than making the arguments. But I think that the flip side of that is that because that's not really a big strategy that people have, have, have used is, you know, is making these kinds of arguments in favor of, you know, of, of unions that that's not really been a big focus. That's one of the reasons I don't think that we can really conclude anything about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of arguments from the weakness of higher ed unions. That'll be my case. Awesome. Um, man, we've been going for quite a while. Uh, did anybody have any leftover kind of um, pointed questions or anything? Or or how, how's everybody feeling? I'm hungry. Yeah, hungry for more logic. 
One, oh, actually, actually, uh, got anything else about the X Files? I don't think I've had a conversation about that in a long time. So oh, I kind of liked that. That's a whole another podcast, please, Jeremy. I'll, th- I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> actually, that reminds me. Um, Zero Books doesn't do book tours, so Ben, there's no way you can get out to the Pacific Northwest, is there? <laughs> Powell's. Uh, yeah, can yeah can uh, can can do some. Well, then again, I mean, even just getting Rob Larson down to do a thing at Powell's from Tacoma has been a uh, has been a because they've been trying to set something up with that, and he'd come you, down and do a book you, thing and anyway. You know what? If if you. Um... If you can set up an event at, uh, at at Powell's, I will I will I will see what I can do as far as uh, you know um, finding. You know this this goes back to that issue about you know contingent contracts and stuff <laughs> not overflowing with cash. But uh, but I think that actually might be a really interesting, really fun trip because um, there's um, you know I mean Doug Lane's out there. Yeah. You know there's the you know like that that that. Yeah, no, that actually uh, that actually might be fun. I was, you know, everything I've been thinking about in terms of possible events has obviously been in terms of taking advantage of my geographic position here is like approximately halfway between New York and Philly. But uh, but I, I think I think that for the sake of a Powell's event, I would I would find a way to make it out there. Right. And I mean, I don't even know how the hell that would happen. But um, yeah, that's the thing is at least I have. Um... I think part of maybe it is just a regional location. I've, I've had, I have had, I uh, got to have dinner with both, uh, with both Doug and uh, Derek Varn when he was visiting last year, and we all went out and had beers afterwards. But um, one, one question, I, I think the last closest thing I have to a question, and then we can like move on to like do like endorsements or something, or even like I don't know, or trials talk if anybody wants to do that. But is the um, there's something about the. And this is this was coming up because I remember seeing a couple articles a few years back that was that were connecting um, everything from like uh, like the uh, how you got certain aspects of like W era capital S skeptic and libertarian, but eventually bleeding into um, bleeding into like men's rights activists and gamer gators, and then eventually into full alt right. Yeah. And one of the things that's uh, that they that they kind of brought up is that a lot the way that a lot of people were uh, into this stuff is that they were the way that they talked about rationalism capital R is yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of like I, for lack of a better word gendering of cognition. That, oh, no like, question, yeah, yeah, you know that's it, almost like this weird like Victorian thing of. Um, Victorian logic, bro. That yeah. <laughs> fact, you know, kind of like ra- reason and rational, ras- uh, rationality and facts were kind of cold and strong and and male, <laughs> and emotions were soft and hysterical and female. And yeah. so, they, but they, and at some point, like all of the, uh, all of like the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the facts. Yeah, the, I mean, it goes in the thing. You have facts don't care about your feelings. Is kind of, um, it's like you know how much of how much shit is embedded in that in that sentence. Yeah, I, I think that's unmistakable. I mean, that's that's clearly, um, yeah, that's clearly a lot of what is going on there. This idea that the uh, uh, that. Um, you know facts uh you know that you have facts and logic you know on the side of conservatism uh and uh, and feelings uh on on the other side but of course what's what's really revealing about that uh that kind of journey that you're describing that so many of these guys have taken right like even the ones who haven't like gone all the way from you know 
of capital S skepticism to to being Nazis, right? Although there are more than a few people like that. Yeah. Uh, but like, even though even the sort of more common journey is from like people who were originally fans of the new atheists, like the Four Horsemen, Harris Hitchens, Dennett and Dawkins, uh, to who are now fans of the intellectual dark web, um, which on its face is really weird, right? Like. Because given their stated values, this makes no sense at all. Like this is uh, that, you know, if their whole thing was that they hated religion because they were just so damn rational. Um, and then, you know, but now they're they've sort of seamlessly transitioned over to being fans of this group that includes Ben Shapiro, who is a, you know, religious fundamentalist who believes that you know god gave israel to the jewish people so fuck the palestinians uh you know like i mean that's other than the swear word i mean that's like pretty much exactly what he says uh to uh and it also includes jordan peterson who uh famously once claimed that um the uh the entwined snake imagery that's common in ancient artwork uh, literally represents the uh, the DNA double helix, possibly because under the influence of um, of you know transcendental drug experiences, people were somehow tapping into that. This is from China. So this is so this is Foxy and Nuwa. I think I've got that right. But I, I just love that representation. It's so insanely cool this representation. So you see the sort of the primary mother and father of humanity emerging from this underlying snake-like entity with its tails tangled together. I think that's a rep I really do believe this, although it's very complicated to explain why. I really believe that's a representation of DNA. So, and that, that representation, that entwined double helix, that is everywhere. You can see it in, in Australian Aboriginal art, and I'm using the Australians as an example because they were isolated in Australia for like 50,000 years. They're the most archaic people that were ever discovered. And they have clear representations of these double helix structures in their art. So, and those are the two giant serpents out of which the world is made, roughly speaking. And, you know, that these people who were somehow hyper-rationalists in the new atheist era are all into these guys now. Uh, and in fact, not only is he, you know, a loopy mystic, uh, but Peterson is also a... Um, like, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, like, it's a little weird that people who are into, who are really into, like, you know, MRA stuff and this, like, idea of traditional masculinity are really into Peterson since, you know, he's he's pretty weepy, right? You know, like, he, he he's not, he is not what anybody could be, in mis you know, could mistake for, like, having his emotions in check. Um, yeah, how much... Oh, yeah, you're saying? How much of this is just a branding thing of like, hey, we a bunch of people consider themselves, um, they consider themselves, you know, the, the smart, rational, enlightened ones, and 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 they, hey, we're, we're we're smart and intellectual and whatnot, and these guys are calling themselves that, so we'll go over to, uh, we'll just pay attention to them now, or something. It's kind of like it's in like it's almost like entire, you know, entirely um, just marketing. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's I mean, that's what it shows that like all of that stuff about uh, rationality was largely uh, just a branding exercise uh, that and, you know, that which uh, that like, you know, what they as long as you're, 
you know, like as long as you hate women enough, you know, that like everything else is optional, right? You know, you can, you can, you can believe in God, you can, you know, you can believe that the twine snakes that aren't even twining in the right direction for this to make sense or the DNA double helix. Right. Uh, you know, you can believe in all the like Yugian vision quest stuff that Peterson's, you know, into, um, you know, as, as long as, you know, as long as you've got the like anti SJW stuff and the misogyny in place, you know, like all that other stuff is, is kind of optional. Right. Uh, so, which is actually, I think a really useful thing to realize. And I think something that actually connects with the point of the book that, um, that like, instead of, instead of those of us on the left kind of, you know, developing this taste, this like kind of distaste for logic talk, you know, that like, uh, that we sort of end up seeing it as like, you know, one of those, you know, uh, you know, that like, that's like, that's their thing, right? You know, that that's the, you know, that like caring about that uh, means that, you know, means that you're sort of, you know, in the enemy's camp, right? Maybe these are even, you know, to, you know, maybe these are even among the master's tools that we can't use to disassemble the master's house, you know, yeah. uh, that, you know, instead of, instead of having that reaction, what our actual reaction should be that, no, this is, this is a, this is a very thin rhetorical pose, right? You know, like the, the slightest little, you know, applying the slightest little finger to clear away the dust, you know, will will show that, uh, that this is, this is a ridiculous conceit, you know, that like, no, they don't care about logic. They like the sound of repeating the mantras about logic because that like reminds them of how little they're like these like horrible hysterical women. But um, but that's all that's going on there. You know, like 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 you you not only do we not have to concede that that territory to them, you know, we should be actively mocking their pretensions to it. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, because I uh, I relate a lot of things to this. It's kind of like they learned that um, they learned that you can be a very successful a very successful entertainer if you have the catches phrases down, which is how um, <laughs> how every uh, every modern era uh, pro wrestler got over and got successful <laughs> is because they had right. the catchphrases that they could put on T-shirts and then the, and more importantly, the audience could shout back to the uh, could shout back to the performers in the ring. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold sets it. You know, from like, and this is, like, I mean, like I said, think of like, from, uh, from like, you know, from uh, Steve Austin and The Rock, you know, to uh, generate to degeneration X onward is always you had you had inter, you know it's kind of a thing where they 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 were they were all catchphrase you know they were good wrestlers but they also were catchphrase based it was kind of a way for like a lot of people who were kind of like that was how like a lot of people got into it was just like the, the um, they really dug the they got invested in the slogans and in the uh, in the wording I guess it's a, it's a tortured uh, analogy but uh, the, our our show was very good at that. <laughs> No, I mean, there's definitely something there. I mean, like, you could actually, um, you know, to to go back one last time to Ben Shapiro, you know, his, uh, like, he, you know, like, there's all kinds of, like, facts don't care about your merchandise feeling that you could be, like, uh, stuff that you can get. Like, I think they sell facts don't care about your feelings tote bags uh, yeah. that, com- that come with, like, a little outline of, of a uh, 
of a tissue box, you know, for liberal tears. So, uh, so yeah, no, there's, 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 there is definitely, uh, in a very weird way, right. You know, cause, uh, cause like in Shapiro's case, I think part of the, uh, part of the gimmick is that he's like four feet tall and he's so, he's so physically weak and ridiculous sounding that like he must be a genius, right? <laughs> that's, I think that's kind of the, um, you know, their, their packaging there. Uh, but like, in a weird way, I think I think the the wrestling analogy is a pretty apt one. What, what was Hulk Hogan's slogan? Um, say your prayers, eat your vitamins. No, uh, God, what was it? It was say your prayers, eat your vitamins, and something, 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 or um, NWO for life, or Hulkamania is running wild. Um, he had. A, it was, but it wasn't as because it was like that was definitely before the uh, everybody everybody bring in your own like um, everybody bring your own sign that really took off in the uh, in the attitude era. But I can't remember if he had um, if he had like actually you know if he I don't think his catch his catchphrases wasn't really as defined. It was more because I think they I think they they emphasized uh, you know the outlandish character more than. Um, Outlandish character and affect more than just kind of than than the catchphrases because it's like it's like it's kind of like you know like Dusty Rhodes or or um, or Macho Man Randy Savage were or the Ultimate Warrior were kind of much more like they you know their selling point was them rather than the thing they would chant. Are you naming wrestlers or alt right people? <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> add on them all over you, anywhere. brother. Okay, so we'll, we'll be in the like, key. yeah. Well, actually, some alt right people sound like wrestlers, like Sargon of Akkad. You know, that's so that could I, I, I could imagine that being a wrestler. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like Hulk Hogan palling around with uh, with Peter Thiel to kill Gawker, and the Ultimate Warrior going off in this weird like. Like homophobic, Islamophobic thing, like he spent like the la- and it's kind of a thing where oh, they only just barely were able to rehabilitate his image enough to have him come back and do a uh, a WWE Hall of Famer thing, but you know right before he died or something. But um, I have a question. We've spent a lot of time talking about bad examples, but who do you think is the best at offering a reasonably logical debate on the right? Ooh, okay. Um, on the right. So I think that um, so I'm just kind of going through quickly the the mental rolodex of uh, of right wingers. Uh, I think uh, do they have to be alive? Yes. Okay. Damn it. <laughs> they have to be alive, and they need to have at least fifty thousand YouTube subscribers. Otherwise, they don't count. <laughs> Well, I'm sure there's libertarians, you know, but I think that we're sympathetic to them because there's a lot of issues that we cross over with. Yeah, similarly, yeah. it's like with like yeah, the, with the your talk with Dave Smith and like yeah, yeah. there's a lot of. Um, but that's cheating, I feel, because it's appealing to us. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, 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 no, that's that's true. But I mean, it's also that that might also be a little easier to see, you know, when we have that like you know twenty uh, percent overlap about how we you know shouldn't be you know killing Pakistani kids with drones or whatever, and then. You we're know, saying we that they're the- good because they agree because well, we agree with them though. Uh, yeah, yeah, I want to troll. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, but but <laughs> they do. But I, I think there are definitely libertarians who who make like interesting, thought provoking arguments for the conclusions that we really disagree with. Right. So um, you can just say me. It's fine. Uh, yeah. Okay. So there's wow. you. Right. That would be my top example. <laughs> but then like. Um, 
I know this violates the no dead people rule, but like, you know, Robert Nozick, uh, who is a really popular libertarian author, wrote a book called Anarchy State and Utopia that um, one, of, one of my guys uh, on the left, uh, G.A. Cohen, who's a Marxist analytic philosopher who I really like, uh, you know, said like since like quoting like the way uh, Kant said that reading David Hume woke him up from his dogmatic slumber, right? He said reading Nozick woke me up from my dogmatic socialist slumber and made me realize there were like good, interesting arguments I needed to uh, uh, to respond to there. Uh, but I did, um, I mean, I don't think this is, I mean, as far as somebody who actually does like public like debates, you know, uh, Nick Gillespie is the editor of Reason Magazine, uh, can be kind of interesting along those lines. I don't like him as much as I like any of the dead libertarians, uh, but uh, but he's you know but but he's you know he's he's interesting um, in in that way um, you know. So I think that as far as actual conservatives uh, who who don't have that like twenty percent you know crossover. Uh, with our with our belief system that makes us like a little bit more willing to listen to what they have to say about the other eighty uh, percent, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I do try to like read, uh, even though I realize it's unrepresentative because like most real conservative, you know, like on a grassroots level, you know, like ninety nine percent of conservatives are like Trumpists now, but uh, but the but I do read like the National Review every once in a while just to kind of try to get a sense of you know, of what those guys are saying. And, you know, he's a, he's a deeply ridiculous person in many ways. Like they've, they've made fun of him on Chapo many times in ways that I found very funny, but like David French will like occasionally write something interesting. Mm. Okay. And I think just to uh, coming to the end of the show, I think uh, the, the closest thing we have to, unless anybody had any other uh, things that are really burning topics, um, the, the closest thing we have to a formal segment on the show is our, uh, our recommendations and endorsements. What have you been digging on that you want to share with others? Uh, ben, you are the guest, so if you have anything, we'll let you go first. Uh, sure. So this is... Uh you know, this might be out of bounds in the opposite way from why, you know, all of the libertarians who I think are making interesting arguments are dead, so I can't very bring that up. But uh, this hasn't actually come out yet. Uh, but uh, Michael Brooks's uh, book on uh, the uh, intellectual dark web, I think it's going to be called Renegades, uh, should be coming out sometime within the next year. And I've been lucky enough to be like read some uh, drafts of, you know, parts of it he's, uh, he's written and and that's that's going to be good. I'm really excited for that. Um, I, I'm you know, I would recommend that when that comes out, people to pick it up. Excellent, uh, Candy or Jacob. Do you have anything to recommend? I talked about the book that I was reading last time I was on your podcast. I'm mm-hmm. still reading it. Um, so the only thing I'm going to say is I just recently heard the song "Teeth" by Lady Gaga, and I really like it. And I think it came out a couple years ago. So that's all I have to contribute. I'm sorry. What was the and what was the book that you had mentioned on the? Oh, it's called uh, Red Star of the Third World by VJ Prashad. Oh, excellent! Yes, nice. I'm gonna go ahead and recommend a book called Sarah No H. Uh, it's not called Sarah No H. There's just no H in the Sarah. <laughs> by Garth Ennis, and it is a book about a 
Russian World War II sniper who happens to be... What? A lady? <laughs> record scratch. Can you put a record scratch in for me here? Okay. Thank you. Let's get scratching. And, just, a, I, and it's got art by Steve Epting, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Just top-notch. Ennis is, of course, a veteran of the comics industry, and he is at the top of his game here. Epting is doing some really beautiful work. They're assisted by Elizabeth Reitweiser, who, in my opinion, is one of the best colorists working in comics right now, and it is a absolutely fantastic story. A lot of action, a lot of emotion. I hope they make a movie. I really can't recommend it highly enough. Awesome. Uh, last thing I will recommend, there's a, uh, I will recommend a Swedish shoegazer noise pop band called uh, West Coast. West Coast? West Coast, I guess. Um, a lot of cool um, like dreamy, poppy tunes, women vocalist, and a lot of guitar noise. So it's good. That's about it. All right. um, Wait, I have one more thing. Go for it. Um, Part of... I generally love my job, and I I, I consider myself very lucky to to have it. I'm a union organizer. But I wrote a haiku uh, during labor management meetings because uh, I hate them. Um, (laughs) And so it goes... uh, I'll just just read. There's four... um, The last line, I have four different versions of the last line. So labor management... The bane of my existence. A kick to the head while it pays the rent. Bosses can get bent. And finally, <laughs> fuck VP Mike Pence. Nice. Yeah. I came I, I came up with that. I think it was like a two and a half hour long meeting. So I thought it was I thought that would be more polite than falling asleep. That's a hell of a long meeting. Yeah. Only uh, only podcast recording meeting should, <laughs> should uh, go that long. Um well, let's see. Okay, how how can um, how can folks get in touch with you? Uh, let's see, uh, Ben, can you I guess uh, list the book once more and uh, let folks know how they can uh, how they can reach you and say where you might be putting in regular appearances on the airwaves uh, any uh, upcoming soon or something? Sure, absolutely. So um, the book is "Give Them an Argument: Logic for the Left." Uh, and the release date for that is May 31st, but you can pre-order it now from um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, the Book Depository, uh, probably other places, but uh, but those are the three that I happen to know. It's a good book, folks. Uh, I've been able to read it. It's fun. Yep. Well, they, they, yeah, it mentions uh, the, the drops mentions of both uh, Chapo and Ben Garrison in the first five pages, and yet no mention of our podcast. Yeah, what do you do? <laughs> Although I did yeah. like the, I did like how I did like how there was uh, there you name check name checked a certain publisher somewhere in the um, in the glossary. I, I guess you could oh. say <laughs> the, at the very end, yeah. And uh, even mentioned, uh, even got got a chance to talk. Yeah, there's a there, at the end of the book, there is a glossary of like terms and fallacies and whatnot, and there are some very interesting examples given, including the fact that you figured out a way how to how to how to mention your dog in there. Uh, yes, that's true. Yep, Lucy, Lucy is mentioned in there. 
um, a uh, you know unusually uh, unusually famous and well-traveled miniature schnauzer. My wife and I got her in South Korea when we were living there, and um, and she's you know lived in a few different states, and she comes to class a lot, and uh, she's uh, and she does she does make a, a brief cameo in one of the argument examples in the book. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and um, so yeah. Uh, the book has been for the last several days. Not that I've been neurotically checking or anything, but uh, since it came up for pre-orders, uh, it's been um, pretty consistently uh, uh, number one in the uh, philosophy criticism section, which I'm under no delusions is like a, <laughs> one of the bigger sections in Amazon. But I, I will take it because you know when you go to the link, it says number one in philosophy criticism. Um, there you go. Get that. Get that screen grab. Yeah. That's that's right. That's right. Uh, that's that's my uh, <laughs> that screen grab is my cover image on Facebook. But uh, that's uh, uh, yeah. Bring also, that, bring that up to uh, bring that up to the tenure board. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, if I if I had that kind of job, I would. It's the neoliberalization of the university. But um, uh, but yeah, absolutely. And then um, and in possibly slightly more meaningful categories. Uh, it's like I don't know, like number like sixty or seventy or something, like that, politics and commentary. But um, still, that's great. But um, but yeah. So as far as uh, places people can get in touch with me or check me out, uh, there's Twitter, of course. That's just at, at Ben Burgess. That's B U R G I S. Uh, and uh, I've been doing regular weekly videos for Zero Books on their YouTube channel. Uh, on a more irregular way, like once every few weeks, I've been doing um, a some of these collaborative videos, a series called Ask a Socialist with this uh, left-wing Canadian uh, comedy and uh, YouTube and podcast channel, uh, The Surfs. Um, and every Tuesday night, uh, if you're a patron of the Michael Brooks show, which you do have to be to see it on Tuesday nights, although you can see it on YouTube later, uh, in the post-game segment uh, of the Michael Brooks show, I've been doing a short segment uh, called the Debunk, uh, where uh, we, you know, take a look at some, you know, right-wing argument that you know is is often topical or just some sort of classic right-wing argument, and you know, and and take it apart and critique it. So uh, those, I think, would be my things to mention. Excellent, thank you. Um... Uh, Candy, Jacob, anything, anything you want to plug or contact? No, sir. I am Jacob Mercy on Twitch and Twitter, and if you want to get in touch with me, you have to upload a YouTube video where you <laughs> present five logical arguments for why we should communicate. Otherwise, I won't respond. Uh, I also want to that throw in a hearty recommendation for... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering if that was also your policy about dating, but go on. <laughs> Yes, actually. Yeah. Uh, I also want to throw in a hearty recommendation for Give Them an Argument, uh, except that I would say that it is a fantastic book for how to manipulate people. If you want ad hominem, argument ad populum, nirvana fallacy, appeal to hypocrisy, all of these are there. All of these are great tactics for cynically persuading people to do what you want. So if you are a fan of logic, it's great. If you're opposed to logic like I am, it's an even more invaluable resource. All right, hey, awesome. I'll sell some books. I'll take it. There you go. Um, 
And as always, you can get a hold of us, mic at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon that I keep forgetting to promote, where uh, for as little um, as little as a dollar a month, you can help us. You can help support us, put this thing out. And if you pay a, a couple more dollars a month, you can get either access to uh, like bonus audio and early episodes. And I throw like uh, we throw like uh, pa- uh, patron only cat pictures in there. Nice. And so yeah, you can find that out at patreon.com slash giving the mic. I do want to we did get uh we did get a five star review uh that wasn't written by me. Uh <laughs> so I want I just want to read that real quick. Uh and also shout out to the Antifada podcast out of Brooklyn. Um, who uh, I was? They had a Q and A episode re- recently that I was able to call in and talk to Sean and Jamie and and uh, and Andy on there for a little bit. But uh, five star review that was said uh, recommendo from the Antifafa podcast from user uh, SLHU5CH. Glad I checked it out. Very smart, funny, engaging. Fight the power. So all right, thank you, thank you very much. All right, well this pretty much wraps it up. We want to th- uh, Ben, thank you very much for. This rather exhaust, uh, you know, man, we exhausted a hell of a lot today. So, and uh, well, actually, no, we actually, no, I, no, I take that back. We we covered a lot of ground and some stuff. We we barely even uh, 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 barely even uh, broke the surface. And I'm kind of curious exactly how long I can get. I can um, I'd be able to get y'all to talk about the to discuss about the X Files for on mic. Um, but uh, yeah, any any final words from anybody other than that? Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. Yeah, thanks for being on. All right. And without further ado, uh, good night, everybody. And that's it. We're out. Good night. Ben, real quick. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the streamer Destiny? Uh, to be honest, it's a name I've heard a lot, but I don't actually know very much about them. Uh, sorry, somebody's doing phone things. What? Oh, sorry. I said, uh, to be honest, it's a name I've heard a lot, uh, but I don't I don't actually know anything about them. Oh, well, I, it's funny because he's actually the guy who really got me, I think, a lot more interested in debate. And he's mm-hmm. a video game streamer who just happened to be really interested in politics. And he has basically made a sideline gig out of debating people on the right. Uh, he's debated Molyneux. He's debated uh, Sargon a few times. And he's also debated just a whole lot of absolutely terrible dipshits. Yeah. And uh, the, the way he's approached it has really made me, for one thing, I guess, maybe despair of the possibility of ever having a rational conversation with anyone ever about anything. Yeah, yeah, the internet will do that to you. But it's also, I think, made me a lot more interested in the topic. And uh, some of that material is pretty spectacularly cringe, but uh, it might be worth taking a look at. Yeah, Yeah. actually, that definitely does sound worth looking at. Yeah, uh, J.G. Michael has, I think he's he's interviewed him at least once on his uh, Parallax Views uh, not too long ago. And I know at least either last week or the week before, a lot of people in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Michael Brooks Discord were trying to get 
uh, either Michael or Sam to talk to him on the air. Because he's just because uh, he's like he's kind of like just a different sort, and he's a popular enough Twitch streamer that it's uh, it's kind of you know another venue, another avenue for uh, to get agitprop out there in front of everybody. Yeah, but. he's probably like the number one person I'd like to see talk to Ben Shapiro. Mm. And make them cool. both and make them both play like you know, but also they they both have they have to like play uh, like Smash Brothers against each other. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. 